So, I mean, as everyone knows, we're delighted to have Jill with us, Dr. Jill Halstead, uh, who's been kind enough to give us an hour of her time this evening to talk about osteoarthritis of the foot, uh, specifically, which is her very, very much her specialist area. If you read her, her blurb, you see that, you know, uh, she's, she's very, uh, her credentials in that area are, you know, un unquestionable. So we're just going to get cracking with, with the big one straight from the top, if that's okay. We'll start with a nice easy one. Um, what's the current uh, best definition of osteoarthritis? Yeah, so this is really interesting because if you refer to something that lots of different practitioners read on osteoarthritis and diagnose, because osteoarthritis is diagnosed by a vast array of different health professionals and medics, if you use NICE guidelines, they would say anybody with joint pain over the age of 50, you should more or less think they've got osteoarthritis. So really broad, really quite vague. And really, it's an attempt to basically say you don't really need an X-ray. You've got joint pain. You're a little bit older. You know, it's probably osteoarthritis. They'll then go into like other criteria, which they'll say, OK, we'll make sure they haven't got anything like early morning stiffness and make sure it's not particularly swollen and therefore you you know, you're not obviously overlapping things like gout, but realistically, it's quite a vague overture is what, you know, the general rule of thumb, because I think that's what a lot of people use in primary care. Interestingly, I think that um, when we look at osteoarthritis and we think about more of a modern approach, they would say it's a um, whole joint organ syndrome and they use this whole joint organ now. They're seeing the joint as an organ and before people just saw it as, this is two bits of very fixated skeletal, you know, parts of your skeleton that you use every day and it's fixated. And we can just say, yes, it's you've either got some wear and tear there or you've got some uh, joint pain there and can be just quite blunt with it. But they're saying this whole joint organ is to basically encapsulate. There's lots of different tissues in there that maybe we didn't think about before related to osteoarthritis. So the whole joint organ approach includes things like ligaments, tendons, fat in the joint menisci, synovium, um, chemicals within, um, you know, the synovium. They talk about subchondral bone as being part of that organ. They talk about bursa being part of that organ. And that this, all these different areas of the, of the joint all add into this, how the joint functions as an organ and how it basically gets you from A to B. And that um, osteoarthritis encompasses all those joint, all those aspects of that joint. So um, to just say it's just bone and cartilage, is a bit of a misnomer now and that you know we say you know arthralgia so joint pain associated with any structure of the joint organ um that you know would basically get you to that diagnostic criteria that's now being more commonly accepted the problem is that we don't know whether that's going to be um how to look at all those different aspects of the joint all those different structures is not possible with most imaging so the way in which we've defined osteoarthritis historically has been based on the imaging so to say oh you've got osteoarthritis and it affects these bits of the joint organ you'd need different types of imaging to look at that so using a diagnosis that encapsulates all those bits wouldn't be possible because you wouldn't send every single person for an MRI an ultrasound and a CT and maybe spec CT and it'd be impossible so Again, we still go back to a broad definition um, because that's the definition that we've got. And like I say, the imaging plays a massive part with that. So pre pretty fair to say on a clinical level when we sort of off the cuff say to our patients, oh, it's, it's just a bit, just a bit of uh, sort of wear and tear in the joint. That's a, that's a bit of a horrific uh, oversimplification from the sound of it. 
Yeah, and there's been a massive move um, to try and change this on a campaign level uh, through arthritis research and arthritis care in big UK charities and even internationally that, that we shouldn't use the term wear and tear because people... Some members of the public don't understand different types of arthritis and to them arthritis might equal wheelchair. And actually what we need to talk about is it's actually a biological organ. You know, the joint does change over time, bones change over time and that it should be um, wear, tear. They talk about wear and repair rather than wear and tear. So you can say you can get a bit of wear that it can repair. Um, and that this wear and repair should reflect the fact that you might stabilise, you might get a little bit better, it may slow down. But until we've got really good data on that, we can't say or we're trying to explore now which of those patients that do get more, I suppose, symptoms and get more chronicity in those people that do a little bit better. But the wear and tear comes out of basically radiographic data. So the first X-ray diagnosis, and that's how we viewed osteoarthritis, was in as a classification came out in 1952 or 53, I can never remember. And that was to define hip and knee osteoarthritis that looked at joint space narrowing, which was your um, surrogate measure of cartilage. And then you had osteophytosis. Um, and because this is a superimposed 2D, you know, all the joints compressed into one plane, um, you get in a picture of the bone. Everyone recognises a picture of the bone, of the ankle and of the foot and the big toe joint. And radiologists recognise that and they say, oh, yes, you've got disease there because I can see it using this. And the downside of that, we've just concentrated on this bone growth, which is the osteophytosis. And we've concentrated on this cartilage loss and we've missed out everything else. And even when they start to move to like sophisticated things like, oh, in the I think it was, let me think, um, they started looking at joint fluid. So start taking serum out of joints and then analysing that for leukocytes and other inflammatory markers. They basically did a job where they looked at osteoarthritis, but compared it to rheumatoid. So rheumatoid, you've got huge amounts of inflammatory mediation within the synovium and um, the fluid is measured and looked at. And they say, oh, this is really inflamed and therefore it's inflamed. And osteoarthritis isn't because it's very low, but they never compared it to normals because taking fluid out of a joint that's normal has some ethical issues. Um, so, again, the way in which we looked at it and the way osteoarthritis was classified, again, was uh, referenced by the method at which they used and then you move on and it goes on again. So the next phase after that was when MRI became very popular. And even CT, but CT only came when we could re do reconstructive CT and really look at the bone in three dimensions. And you think about uh, computer video rendering. We take that for granted now. That's still very new to have that within a clinic. CT rendering where they put the, you know, the foot into 3D and spin it round. Fantastic. But we didn't have that before. And um, so we couldn't see that the bone changed shape. We had remodeling and this focus on bone now being part of the osteoarthritis process is really interesting. And um, the fact that we can look at MRI and look at tissues and ultrasound, whether they're soft tissues and look for markers of inflammation. Um, we look, you can see all the different structures and see where there's different contrast that gives information that's active and different from being normal. So, um, yeah, wear and tear definitely oversimplifies. Wear and repair is what we should be saying to our patients. And that, you know, we should reassure them that always something can be done. And that's a big message, again, that's came out from national public, publicity campaigns, that you can never say, oh, I'm really sorry, nothing can be done. It's always something can be done. Yeah. Actually, that's interesting yeah. that, that that's happening, say, in the OA community. And over here, we have the pain science community um, talking about nocebic language. And that's exactly what's happening over here. I don't know. I, I presume the two groups aren't talking to each other. But it certainly wow. makes sense to not use that nocebic language of wear and tear to, to, to wear, wear and repair, which is yeah interesting. Yeah. yeah.
Yeah. And again, it's just framing it with um, giving something a positive slant and saying stabilisation is good. You know, stabilisation is good. We do know there's an ageing component. Um, Joint pain and inflammation at the joint uh, behaves differently in different age groups. Definitely. If you have a traumatic event in a joint when you're in your 20s, you've got a bit more stem cell activity. It behaves completely differently as when it happens. If you have a bad injury, you know, in your 40s and 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s. And part of that will be your biological age, i.e. how healthy you are, not your actual age. But part of it will be that, you know, we're better at healing when we're younger. And they're getting some really good data out of adolescent trauma type usually football actually if I'm honest because lots of people play it and they know lots about it but um yeah so uh trying to formalize that and say things can change and you know we now have big studies where we can look at data over time which we never had before we just had serial x-rays and serial x-rays hide so much and it, all they may show is oh and the, the kind of like what measurements wise with x-rays you're looking at really small measurements and as we know smaller measurements suggest that reproducibility and repeatability is difficult you know bigger measurements are easier so you know they may think oh it's got slightly worse and they can't really measure it and actually it could have just stabilized for a long period of time but again we're getting into big data now and it's getting really exciting cool um on, on the top on the topic of sort of terminology nomenclature you know we're known as being pedants uh within our community some more than others of course and um when it comes to things like tendinopathy tendonitis fasciitis fasciopathy um, certainly over the years, there's, there hasn't, doesn't seem to have been quite so much sway, you know, away from osteoarthritis to say osteoarthrosis. But I certainly remember reading about that previously. So this kind of debate, or is, is there a debate between inflammation versus, you know, this wear and repair? Or where are we currently at? And is, is osteoarthritis, you know, absolutely the most accurate term given our current understanding? Yeah. So now what I'm starting to say is that um, this came out. The biggest thing that made us really change our minds over this, because actually ultrasound is not that sensitive to some levels of inflammation. You have to have quite a lot of um, vascular changes around a joint to show, um, um, you know, Doppler changes. And so if you look at community studies of knee osteoarthritis and Doppler studies, they varied massively as whether there was inflammation at the joint because it won't pick up really small vascular changes. It's only really when they start using gadolinium, so that's a contrast agent within MRI, because this highlights synovium that's active, and again, knee are our best model, that we saw the difference between, you know, people saying, oh, there's no inflammation, no way, and you look at radiographics, that's the kind of thing, or it's very, you can see inflammation in joints in radiographs, and soft, you can see soft tissue effusions, but they have to be really large. So you, you would look at that and people would look at prevalence of, say, um, a joint effusion. So that's what we call it, a swelling in the joint. We don't use synovitis or inflammation because obviously that's the one word. They would say, OK, you maybe get 10 percent of knees. And then you look at ultrasound, they may quote something like, OK, maybe 15, 20. And then when you look at studies that have looked at gadolinium within an MRI by themselves, they may say it's closer to 50. And then they start using gadolinium where the lining of the synovium is actually picked up. And you can actually see that um, outline that's suggesting that the synovium is inflamed, enlarged, you know, busting out all these really um, pro-inflammatory cytokines, all these inflammatory chemicals is really easy to see. And you're talking about 90 percent now. And then they've got looked at sophisticated ways of looking at joint fluid and looking at biomarkers. And they're now saying there's inflammation definitely at the start, no matter whether it's traumatic or not. And that low grade inflammation can be aggravated or get into cycles of inflammation given other factors. So, you know, you now have what they call like a gross inflammatory model, which is now what we say is a traumatic model because you can see that very, very easily. Um, and then they've got this kind of like there is inflammation with what you call 
run of the mill type osteoarthritis, um, you know, slow onset, insidious, um, or even other types, and that that does have low grade inflammation. And things like highly sensitive CRP, C creatinine, uh, uh, C reactive proteins, sorry, um, blood tests are starting to give us information because we're using highly sensitive versions of that. And so not only are you seeing inflammation within the joint, you are seeing it within the whole vascular system. So they're now saying that osteoarthritis definitely is an itis. It's definitely inflammation. But what perpetuates those low levels of inflammation seems to vary quite massively. And that's where the that's where osteoarthritis gets complicated because there's lots of factors that feed into why somebody gets osteoarthritis joint pain for longer periods than some others. And that's what we're basically get to that point of we're on right at that brink now. It's really exciting that we can start to understand that um, process and what we can do to help. Brilliant. Can we talk a bit about prevalence? Um, yeah. I know, I know you were at the you were at the World OA conference uh, last week, uh, and I believe Kay Patterson was there as well from Australia. And yeah. he, he he put a, a tweet out, um, and I think he was quoting Douglas Gross at the time, and he was talking about the prevalence of OA in the foot. And essentially, uh, oh, good, Craig's showing it now, so I don't have to try and paraphrase it. Um, mm-hmm. Essentially, the time the time for for feigning surprise at, at how high the prevalence. Uh, of OA is in the foot is over um and I guess those numbers are are sort of locations in the foot I mean what what do we currently know about its prevalence and 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 how that's sort of tracked over time so Douglas Gross was quoting the work from Keel which is Ed Roddy's group and George Pete was leading on that but Ed Roddy's a rheumatologist and Martin Thomas who's um they've got the KSEF which is the large um GP based primary care because they're the primary care research center that's what what's great about that data is it's uk data even though douglas gross is from america so our data has been about oa prevalence has been basically set by radiographs from um the Clearwater. um then you've got the netherlands um uh data and then you've got that little bit of you've got that nice work that's been done in residential homes with hilton men's group but what hill what um like say the keel group what the uk have done by looking at what's presented gps they for the first time identified people with foot pain five thousand people and then said okay we're going to do radiographs and look at the symptoms and they were able to easily extrapolate that one in six people have symptomatic this is symptomatic radiographic oa and don't forget, radiographic means um, pretty advanced changes. OK, that's like grade two or three for those people who are aware of KL. Um, and, you know, you've already got quite a lot of what I like to call the pie crust. So if we just look at first MTP joint, big, quite a lot of pie crust of osteophytes going all the way around the joint, quite a bit of joint space narrowing. So there'd be no argument that's definitely OA. And so grade two or three is considered established OA. So if that's one in six people with established symptomatic, you know, and that was um, how many would be with early or none or some. And what was really nice about that work was people just thought, oh, yeah, I expect that with the big toe joint. because Everyone's really aware of osteoarthritis, the big toe joint. But one in eight people have midfoot osteoarthritis. And the big problem is it's not well recognized or understood. There's lots of little joints in there and then anatomy can get really complex. And um, people, some people have good understanding of that and some people will find that more difficult to recognise because maybe they recognise it as that foot's collapsed or they recognise it as some bony lumps and bumps. Um, yeah, so it's interesting that it's far more prevalent in terms of symptoms. And if you just look at non-symptomatic, so if you just looked at Hilton Men's work, which was people in a residential home, I think it was about 180, wasn't it? Um, and... They just looked at whether they had radiographic change. By the time you get to retirement age, so 65 and above, that's two out of three people. <laughs> so 
So you're talking really big numbers. And the one in six and one in eight um, with symptomatic radiographic in the community, um, they're over 50 as well. So you've not even counted people who have other um, problems in their earlier age because maybe they played football, they had a stamp injury, a turf toe injury, something that caused more of a traumatic onset. Um, or for other reasons, it, it became as an early presentation. So we're probably underestimating that even more. Um, in my midfoot pain study through my PhD, um, I tried to disclude. I really, really tried to get rid of OA because I didn't want it in my PhD. And um, just like if you go by MRI abnormalities the, um, of what you can see on MRI, because it's much more detailed. The radiologists identified that 50 percent of those people had some radiographic signs that they would identify as being osteoarthritis. But 90 percent had abnormalities. And my mean age in my group is 48. So much younger. So I think what we need to accept is that osteoarthritis is much more common, particularly in the foot. And then it matches nearly as high as knee and definitely as high as hip. And what we need to do is make this a bit more sexy so we get as much funding as hip. <laughs> and uh, then it'll keep someone like me in a job for a long time, which is great. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's been really good to see that work done. And we've got really big numbers. And um, we've even started to understand there's different types and groups. So, yeah, I think... Our, what we recognize with osteoarthritis is it is everywhere and it is because hammer toes osteoarthritis hallux limitis hallux rigidus, osteoarthritis my argument is quite a bit of HAVs, osteoarthritis a lot of people disagree with me that's fine um you know so we see it all the time we're really good at spotting it and actually do we need to find out ways to treat it better for sure yeah and that, that makes sense that prevalence as to why it's such a popular been such a popular thing to ask questions about because clearly people are seeing a lot of it so um let's talk a bit about uh, if we can about um the 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 influence of load on its on its evolution and development because we probably well i say we i certainly have been guilty in the past of thinking well the reason it's so prevalent in the foot must be because the foot has such load-bearing responsibility through life and we often think of it, when we do have that wear and tear old-fashioned sort of hat on that kind of fits into the same picture. But some some of your some of your updates I saw on your social media from the conference certainly suggested that it's not it's not just a load based problem. It's far more more sort of mm. complex and, and certainly interesting than that. And do you mind sort of just updating us all on that? Yeah. So um, what's been really interesting is because we can start to look at osteoarthritis in different joints. So for the first time, people are looking at. Um, cohorts of groups together so in the past even up until 10 years ago you had lots of I'm just looking at knees I've got a knee pain cohort so I've got a big group of people knee pain I'm going to share my ideas with your ideas over knees oh yeah and I'm over here looking at hips um, and what people are starting to collect now is multi-joint um, and what they thought was that the osteoarthritis actually behave differently in different joints because of load bearing so does it behave differently in the shoulder? Yes, there's definitely different ways in which it behaves in the shoulder. Um, you get a lot more debris in the shoulder. Um, but actually, does that affect load? And they've started to relate, for instance, knee osteoarthritis to shoulder, which is to do with how you get out of a chair, interestingly. So that's related. They thought, oh, that's related to load. But it's only when they've got to the hand, because obviously the hand has so little load that they've started to say, OK, what is about getting hand away that's different and is this to do with, like, say, the wear and tear or how is it to function, basically, to do the movement? And that um, it doesn't seem to be the case because there's this low grade inflammation that seems to be, um, you know, a strong feature of this. But also that there's other chemical factors to do with, like, bone metabolism, for instance, hormones, for instance. And what's really new is about the obesity metabolic syndrome message, because we know in the last 10 years, we know far more about and we do that 
identify now as fat being an organ. It's an organ throughout your body. It's the most sophisticated organ. It keeps alive. You know, if we got dropped in the Sahara Desert, it would keep us alive and go until we walked home. You know, it's a very sophisticated and well-adapted organ. And that there are um, hormones released from that organ that do affect osteoarthritis and other diseases now that we're starting to recognise and they're starting to say that, um, you know, these adipokines were first published around about 2000, 2000 sorry, 2010, 2011. Uh, they start to see this inflammation locally within fat pads like the patella fat pad. But they're starting to say, actually, these inflammatory fats, you know, released from fats are actually prevalent throughout the body. And they're affecting the hands because they're basically overstimulating this inflammatory process. So I think we need to come away from just load because, um, obesity historically when they looked at data when we first had the obesity relation to OA people thought this would be really cut and dry they thought exactly what you did in that yeah okay older people all have worse OA and it actually was a little bit of a confounder because there was some data around the fact if you've always been big and you're quite stable guess what you've adapted to your load so actually being big and being consistently big you do okay because your joints are actually well designed to take load adapt to load and it's about this adaptation period so if you've got a long adaptation period, you do well. People who seem to yo-yo and go up and down with their weights, they seem to do a bit worse because their body can't equip to deal with that load as well. And um, so load seems to still have a, a feature, but that feature should be put with other factors. So is it the load is you're doing OK with the load, but your bones are not suddenly coping with that load because there's this background metabolic effect and the endocrine system isn't quite what it was. So, again, it's all about um, what your body's able to deal with. The body's quite sophisticated. But when it comes to bone and joint, the one thing I always tell patients when I'm educating is say it's a really slow organ. OK, you know, your skeleton replaces itself anything from one to seven years. Your skin and your muscle, they heal two to four weeks, six weeks. You know, so if you want adaptation and you want real load adaptation in your bone, you've got to think of the long haul. So all these people who want long distance runners and they don't want to affect their joints. Great. Take the load gradual because guess what? Your bone will deal with it. And that's what seems to have come out with the nice long term runner data, doesn't it? With the knees and osteoarthritis. I know you've been quite mm. interested in that, that we shouldn't be afraid of saying, you know, load through a joint is OK, because actually it doesn't seem to make your arthritis worse as long as your body can deal with it. So understanding those background um, metabolic processes help into us to pick apart what's really important about how your body deals with load and what you can adapt to. And if you can adapt to it and you can stabilize, you can take load and you can be active. And actually it helps because guess what? It reduces the inflammation in your muscle, your muscle emphasis junction, and also within your fat. So guess what? Maybe your arthritis will quieten down for other reasons. And maybe your bones actually, because we know that loads are really important for bone strength, but maybe you get a better turnover, the right kind of bone because your body goes, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> So, you know, sitting in a chair and protecting yourself, we now know is the worst thing you can do. And that that's what we shouldn't be doing. That's why we need to focus back on that wear and repair. Yeah. And actually, you mentioned the sort of, you know, that all the, the running away. And that comes in nice with one of the other that we're going to make, which is, you know, often, and it's quite obvious given how our historic beliefs and, of course, how we've projected those beliefs with the language we've used onto our patients. So we've told them it's wear and tear. We've told them we've used the word degenerative, very sort of nocebic words. They sort of fear inducing. They, they get cunningsophobic, they catastrophize. And then the question comes back at us, which is, well, is, is it going to get well? There's three questions on there. Is it going to get worse? How much worse is it going to get? How, how much you know how quickly is it going to get that bad um and then they go into this kind of they wrap themselves in cotton and they, they stop moving so i mean clearly 
they're questions we're still going to get asked. And I guess, depending on how we frame it from the start, perhaps we'll get asked them less. But when, when we are asked those questions, or when you're asked those questions by your patients, uh, how do you feel them? So I, you know, I say, look, you know, we're starting to understand types of um, osteoarthritis. We focus on the foot because that's what we're here to talk about. You know, um, Keel have already looked at these types saying, OK, there's three types. It's like a, if you've got foot pain, you, you can have um, like a minimal um, osteoarthritis or no osteoarthritis. You've got this isolated big toe and you've got this midfoot and big toe, this polyarticular and polyarticular seems to be a bit worse, particularly midfoot. You seem they have much higher symptoms. So the location of where you get the osteoarthritis in your foot is quite important to how worse or better you do. So, uh, you know, and if they've got symmetrical polyarticular in the midfoot, you'd question whether it's going to go big toe to midfoot or midfoot to big toe. We kind of don't know which course it is yet. There's still some debate over that. But isolated big toe osteoarthritis, that seems to have the lowest odds of um, having um, cross-sectional pain and follow-up pain depending on and but some do progress so if you have yeah and there's that rules back to what we see clinically you might have somebody coming going oh, I've got a lump on my big toe but actually doesn't hurt that much so the odds of getting osteoarthritis without having lots of pain can be fine and it may stabilize so I say okay I'm hoping you're that kind that, that stabilizes and maybe this is one episode you might not have another episode for 10 years um, actually unfortunately you've got a bit more osteoarthritis in your midfoot You've got it in both feet. I'm a little bit, you know, I'm a bit worried this might take a little bit more to settle. Let's try and look at other things that might help that settle a bit more quickly. So let's be a bit more aggressive with our treatments. Let's pile them on a little bit more rather than just say change your shoes. Because I think that, that that needs to be looked at a little bit more. The next step after that is to say, OK, you've got osteoarthritis in your, your foot. But actually, have you got any tendon or ligament changes as well? And that, again, to me, because the soft tissues can cause a lot more pain because they're a lot more vascular, I'd treat that more a bit more aggressively because I'm like, okay, have you got any um, post-tib, flexolusis longus, flexodigitorum longus? Have you got any um, ligament changes, um, Liz Frank, um, you know, spring ligament, etc. cetera? Um, small ligaments around the collaterals of your big toe, they can get quite inflamed. That's what the MRI study suggests. Um, so I'd be wanting to look at those a bit more aggressively and say, OK, let's get that down because maybe that'll help your pain. And we do know that if joints destabilize, they do worse. And that's where evidence of the knee. So if we can stabilize that, so if we can get the muscles working again, be a bit more aggressive with our rehab. So I think um, we need to pile on what we do according to where we think the prognosis is going to go. And there'll be some people who go, yeah, it's been bad in both feet. And actually, I'm the next thing I check is their hands because nodal finger osteoarthritis is particularly predictive of poor outcome it's more common in women it's definitely genetic it actually predicts hip OA as well so for those people I'm like okay you definitely need to think about maybe weight loss because weight is really prevalent as an issue for hips particularly because of and it is quite quite clearly directed with load and actually inflammation isn't great for hand either um in fact so let's get the weight down because we do know that weight has a big effect on foot pain there was a really nice study that um I reviewed um early this year or like last year that said about two kilograms of body weight increase will cause your pain to go up in a you know linear related fashion but what was really interesting even though it was a short-term follow-up it was two years a proportion of those people their weight went down by two kilograms and guess what that relationship went in the other direction and I put out to the author that's just as interesting because guess what two kilograms people go well that's like Christmas weight I can lose that your pain proportionally <laughs> goes down because maybe that's related to the load but also the fat you know, and there's good evidence from the knee that if you lose five to 10 percent body weight, your cartilage actually changes um, thickness. 
you get better regeneration of well not regeneration but it slows the degradation of the cartilage down so that we can help that biological model so how how whether i think someone's got a worse prognosis will be what i pile on to get that sorted out quicker because i think okay i can't be relaxed about this this little, this person's going to need a bit more help and similarly if they're really inflamed joints you know i don't like a lot of inflammation for a long period of time i'm like okay maybe we need to think more about steroid because you've had this a while i'm worried that that inflammation is perpetuating the cycle plus the load in some ways that they're not dealing with it. So again, let's go to that next step. Um, it's a shame we don't have great evidence for steroid in the feet, but it's getting there. Um, we've had a few audits. There's a couple of spec CT, a couple of ultrasound, but um, yeah. And so I would go to that next stage. So for me, if someone's got prolific lots of osteoarthritis in their feet, um, definitely pile on everything you've got. <laughs> the upshot because they're not <laughs> going to do as well. Um, the evidence is they've got more than four joints involved in their foot. They do worse. So if we can help them the most and those that seem to have more isolated, singular, a bit more up and down with their pain that go through episode, episodic type pain that maybe those ones we can be a bit more hands off and say, OK, you need to look after it, but keep active, wear good shoes, you know, so it needs to be, I think, matched to the presentation that we see. Cool. And you, you've touched on quite a few treatments in that answer there. You've mentioned footwear and, and injections and and we'll talk about treatment uh, in a little bit, if that's OK. We'll add in sort of orthoses and also joint joint lobes and the nips and things. But before we do, the other thing that I want to touch on that you mentioned is these, um, these, these ways that they present in sort of groups or clusters. You know, with some pathologies, we can almost group them and, yeah. and, and ta- tailor their treatment. Um, I know I saw, again, some of your comments from the, the World OA conference uh, referring to... Um, to the sort of that uh, phenotypes and things. I mean, could you just give us the simple update on on where we're at with that? So again, this has taken really big data. So the Osteoarthritis Initiative, um, which is a a National Institute of Health um, endeavor in America, have been able to group lots of data, particularly knees. It's it's got, I think it's included hips now. They've got something like 33,000 knees with everything or various bits of MRIs, genetics, bloods, tissue, name it. And so because they've got big data now and you need really big data with osteoarthritis because guess what? It's a syndrome. Lots of people present slightly differently with it. They've been out, they've just um, released a paper on PLOS One that basically now start to look at whether there's types of osteoarthritis. So they've identified kind of what they call minimal joint disease. People who seem to get sub-joint disease that happens and this might be part of an aging process. There is still an aging effect of collagen um, and, whether, and again, we need to talk about that health aging versus biological aging because you can age better and some will age worse. You, so there's this minimal joint disease that seems to do quite well. There's this malaligned biomechanics that we probably recognize clinically. We say, OK, that doesn't look good. You know, you know, the foot's change shape. The knees become more varus or valgus. You definitely got this chronic pain overture where there's definitely pain sensitization. There's some really different nociceptive changes that happens when you've got osteoarthritis, how we interpret pain changes. There's even some nociceptive changes that relate to neuropathy around the knee. So vibration sense, for instance, goes at the knee with knee osteoarthritis. It's a really well recognized problem. I actually used to do that when I worked in private practice to look at vibration loss with knee osteoarthritis because they're a predictor of worse outcome. Um, and it's a really nice, easy thing because we interpret vibration all the time, for instance. And I'd be like, OK, you need to do a lot more balance and stability work because you're going to do a bit differently. So they're definitely a different type. They talk about this inflammatory type and that might be to do with chondrocalcinosis changes because we do know that uh, crystal phosphate disease seems to play a role. If you look at cadaver studies, lots of people have crystal phosphate changes. So um, it could be uh, trauma. There's lots of inflammatory mediated, uh, but with a definite inflammatory overture. Um, we call it a rosy osteoarthritis in rheumatology because they see quite a lot of it. 
Uh, metabolic syndrome is the big one now. Everyone's really recognizing this role of metabolic disease. This, um, you know, that has a vast, a chronic vascular disease, which is actually inflammatory, um, inflammation driven. But this seems to affect joints um, and, the, you know, you can get to like pre-diabetic model. And then it leads you on to the obesity metabolic syndrome um, link and that we need to really be aware of that. because That's our biggest time bomb. So osteoarthritis, looking at the World OA conference, then it's all going up. And probably the reason it's all going up is because there's something about the fact that we're affecting those types. And the, the types might be the metabolic types, the loading, the malaligned biomechanics types, because we've never sat, sat, sat down so much in our lives. And that's not good for our body. Skeletally, we're adapted to move. And there's something about chronic pain that maybe um, our modern approaches to chronic pain and um, how we deal with pain um, needs to maybe change because, you know, the medical model of, oh, I need to take painkillers all the time isn't healthy for us either. So, yeah, there's definitely those types that now to focus. And what we need to look at those, how they might be adapted in the foot. We can definitely take links from there and say, OK, you're a thinner little lady you've got osteoporosis in your family you've got joint pain all over you're likely to have more of a metabolic type of osteoarthritis tends to happen after the menopause okay we need to look at what's your bone um health like do you have good diet you know things like that might be a different way of approaching someone like that who they still have foot problems but that's maybe different how you'd approach somebody with this metabolic syndrome where they're likely to be more overweight they like to have high fat and high um, high cholesterol um, high fat subcutaneous fat contents they're likely to have um, hypertension and they're going to be treated differently and if we can start to break that down we can start to give a patient specific care plan and really treat it in the medical way it needs so i mean so clearly the list of uh, of treatments I, I touched on a minute ago we need to probably add on to that uh, education discussion you know advice discussion on weight and in our private practice settings if we're not set up or we don't feel comfortable doing that at what stage should we be thinking onward referral and, and who should we be referring these people on to is it is it rheumatology is the direction they're nudging or is it is it the endocrinology department i mean just thinking about sort of someone who may be listening to this who suddenly thinks oh crikey i've got a patient with more than four joints affected and she sort of fits the the, the description of the little lady that you just um put out there there may be someone listening going i've got a patient like that and maybe maybe that's why the orthoses uh, and the joint mobilizations aren't working where, where do they pass to and at what stage yeah and this is the problem i want to touch on this by saying you know osteoarthritis is one of those few diseases that's treated by a lot of different people so you've got all health professionals every single health professional and every single um you know everything from what you call care professionals, maybe healthcare professionals. So you've got, you know, dietitians plus nutritionists. You've got podiatrists, physios, chiropractors, osteopaths, um, you know, orthotists. You've got, um, and pedorthotists if you're in a different country. You've got um, orthopedics. You've got rheumatology. Endocrinology definitely sees some bone disease. You know, they used to do pagets, but rheumatology now do a lot more pagets. Um, metabolic um, bone diseases like osteopenia, osteoporosis, that's varied. You get some trusts where it's all under rheumatology, some trusts where it's all under endocrinology. Um, it might be all run now through a virtual fracture clinic because they do a lot of the metabolic work. Um, yeah, so, and this is the problem. It does vary quite a lot. You might have some chronic pain and they've been under neurology because guess what? You know, they're kind of thinking something weird's going on because they've got lots of pain. Um, yeah, so I think it is complex and it's difficult and um, the hospital departments probably do seem with a more complex multi-joint osteoarthritis, but with a view that people want to know whether it's inflammatory and they're set up to deal with inflammatory. Historically, they saw everything, but more recently, 
they're dealing a lot more closely with inflammatory and connective tissue disorders. So if you suddenly sent everyone with multi-joint pain, and don't forget the average number of joints involved in the whole body is in, in a typical 55 year old could be four. You'd send everybody in rheumatology would be overrun. So they probably wouldn't want to see anything. And would they say anything differently to you or me? That's the question. Does, does it need to go to someone like that where their disease processes are quite easily recognisable? They meet the nice guidelines and, you know, you understand those processes. So I don't think secondary care is where that needs to be, because I think we need to say, OK, you, unless it's very severe and it's getting worse and you've covered your red flags and you don't have any concerns um, about maybe something like deteriorating mental health associated with chronic pain. But realistically, primary care, allied health professionals, um, we're being pushed forward by the five year forward plan by that's obviously a lot of the UK um, uh strategies to deal with this in primary care because it's a problem that everybody has so I think we should be the person that can lead those conversations I think we're good at understanding limitations of health and how people can interact with other health because we've got good uh, skills in like vascular we understand about stopping smoking wearing protective things to pacing ourselves to so I think we should um, health coaching for me has really changed my practice and I would recommend anyone to go on a course because it really helps um get that patient to where they need to be in terms of their journey in that disease and where they feel they they need their understanding and what they're willing to take on. Because a lot of these things that feed into whether you're going to do better with osteoarthritis, like smoking has a worse effect on osteoarthritis, being slightly overweight does, you know, those things can be quite challenging conversations. And actually it's making that conversation palatable and helpful for the patient rather than being, um, you know, talking about compliance or adherence, things that are basically quite negative, you know, we all make unwise decisions. <laughs> they can perfectly make unwise decisions. Sometimes we need to support them and say, but would you like your pain to go? And Can I do something to help that? What, you know, and really focus on their concerns and what's achievable for them. So I think if it's around chronic pain, metabolic syndrome, um, anything that you feel you can deal with, great. Have a conversation, start that process off and let them feel like they're in that journey, in that process, that pathway. But where you feel there's something a little bit more of a concern. So if you feel like they've got osteoporosis, so the one of the biggest, nice, well, one of the nicest papers that came out of osteoporosis about height loss. So if you notice your patient getting smaller, they're definitely on that spectrum, like say that little old lady. You know, I'd be worried that they're not being treated properly for their osteopenia, osteoporosis. And that can that manifests itself a lot with like hip pain as well as um, uh, stress response in the feet as well. So I think we should have an awareness that you know foot pain and hip pain can be related and that actually maybe like you say they need referring on to their GP to say okay I'm worried that this patient's got thinner bones and actually what can we do about it do they need to be on bisphosphonates do they need a vitamin D profile do they need to have a better nutrition and those are the ones where maybe we can make a really big difference um, but for now I would say that there isn't probably a lot of secondary care that can deal with lots and lots of osteoarthritis so until we get probably better treatments that are a bit more directed for those more severe cases, I think we're probably a little bit limited because the data is not quite there. Yeah. Actually, I mean, as, as, as a, sorry, Greg, go on, go on. I was just going to say that Andrew Hill asked a question earlier on that I think you've just answered then, but his question mate, is a really good summary of what you just said. In other words, are the therapeutic options not so well explored or offered due to the traditional perceptions of its chronicity? Now, you, you pretty much just answered that, but that sums it up quite well, doesn't it? Yeah. And I think that's part of the problem is um, how many health professionals can really be with that patient for the next 20 years? You know, what point do we intervene and where do we intervene? Um, but like I say, the message is something can always be done. And that message might be something always can be done. Um, you know, ensure you're getting 
good sun exposure because vitamin D we know plays an element with particularly pain, particularly if it's very low. There's really nice data around really low levels of vitamin D affecting pain. Um, it might be to do with, um, you know, have they got good bone health? Um, you know, they smoker and they're underweight. So is it that side of it? Um, is it because the, the other side and they need to maybe lose some weight and some load? But is it that they've not got enough strength because we know strength and muscle strength is really important? And so the core when we the UK, we have the nice guidelines, the core things of trying to do aerobic exercise and um, doing all the healthy behaviours that will always help pains and help function. Um, to some degree, it may not help their pain so much, but it may mean they can go to the shop and maybe that's objective. They'd like to be able to just have a nice walk out. So, um, again, if you can find an objective, the patient can get behind and support them in that. I think that's something we can do a lot with. Um, and if we can help with some of their pain and their pain management, whether that be load redistribution because of using insoles, whether it's like we talked about form, we'll touch on a little bit more injections. We need to um, get that um, target to the patient at the right time. And if they have got a lot of inflammation, you know, can we inject it? Can we talk about anti-inflammatories? Can we do something? But yes, always something can be done. So, I mean, it, it's pretty clear, I think, given the, given what we've said just then and given the prevalence and there's only, only that prevalence only appears to be going in one direction, that as a whole profession, we as podiatrists, it's, it's our duty really to be as up-to-date on this as possible, as well-read as possible, yeah. um, to, to, to you know, use the right language when we're describing it to our patients. To, to, you know, the, the emphasis is really on us to, to stay as up-to-date as possible uh, from, from what you're saying there. Um, it clearly isn't just about giving it's sorry just repeat that it's clearly not about uh, it's clearly not just about saying we're the podiatrists steroid injections and foot orthoses and if that doesn't work we'll, we'll pass it on it's clearly far broader than that yeah that and I, yeah even down to the fact you know if you've got chronic foot oa pain your risk of falling is higher than any other factor and that supersedes like independently of um pain uh, sorry that foot pain associated with midfoot particularly midfoot osteoarthritis but foot pain generally chronic pain which you'll get more with osteoarthritis you know your risk of falling is that seems to be much more powerful than even like say age um you know or so i just think there's things with things that we need to do to help that patient even if it's preventing a fall even if it's um you know talking to them about the fact they might have joint pains elsewhere the fact that their foot pain is related to knee pain I think as podiatry for me the big thing now which is why we've got it at the conference and I know Ian support this a lot he's saying that we need to be good at assessing the knee because the foot is intrinsically related uh, Cade's work that you tweeted about that's what his work with Kim Bernal showed that foot pain foot, um, is particularly related to the onset and of knee osteoarthritis and particularly worsening and they've done some really nice relationship work over about three years and I think I've posted if I've not I'll post it tonight but on MSK UK but it's just that um yeah we should be expert at that because if we can help that patient because they're functioning better um we should because we need to have that whole lower limb um you know appreciation and understand that the you know there's going to be those malign biomechanics and there's going to be that subgroup that we can do a lot with there's going to be subgroups that we can do a lot more with than others and if we can be experts in that um we're helping a huge volume of patients out there um you know, and if you have got a good, more arsenal, you can, you know, because we do have Depamedrome on our prescription licenses in the UK, as podiatrists, or most of us do. You know, if you feel comfortable with that and that's something you want to go forward with because you feel like you are seeing some inflammatory, great. You know, train up if you feel that um, you're happy with some of your medication to say, yes, I think taking a short course of anti-inflammatories to help with your pain, let's strengthen you up, great. If you can say, OK, can you be more active? Let's give you some goals to pace you, great. There's lots of things we can do, lots. I don't think, like you say, just 
insoles, injections and surgery as a pathway is the limitation of where we've been, but it has been traditionally. Yeah. And, and just feeding into my own bias, because the demographic that I see are much, much younger, often between 20 and 30 um, sort of sportsmen, either elite or, or, or sub-elite. So do, would you consider, do you treat that group of people differently? Because, I mean, the thing we tend to see a lot of is, say, just one joint um, OA, or, uh, which they doesn't seem to be explained. So you sort of say to them, oh, this must be traumatic. But you ask them, has there been trauma to this joint? You know, they say, well, have I got, only got this on one big toe, not the other? You say, oh, is that your kicking foot? Or, you know, has there been a trauma there? And they, they deny it. And perhaps they're just not very good historians. But I mean, would you treat that group of people differently? And how would you answer the question as to why they've only got one big toe joint OA and not the other in, in what they perceive as an absence of trauma? Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Because we don't know what happens over time. And like I say, the Keel Group have only just released their 18-month data. So for the first time, we've actually got follow-up data of people with foot OA for the first time ever. <laughs> We're like 50 years behind everyone else. And that seems to suggest that although cross-sectionally people with big toe osteoarthritis don't seem to have the same risk or likelihood of, you know, pain or chronic pain or large amounts of pain compared to, like, say, the midfoot, um, there is something about the development of that osteoarthritis. But they did show, interestingly, that some developed went on to develop from first toe osteoarthritis to, like, HAV deformity. And what sets that off and why that occurs in one foot, it was the left foot, which I found really interesting because it did seem to be unilateral. So... Is there something about one side dominance um, being affected more than the other? Um, you know, they have found the Bunyan gene. I don't know if you know much about the genome stuff that's been going on with uh, foot osteoarthritis. So uh, the Framingham work have added in um, genome study. And they, uh, Marion Hanna, who's been leading on the foot work on that in America, you know, they found the Bunyan gene. So is there something about the onset of osteoarthritis, how, how it develops? Is there something to do with like either genetics or epigenetics, particularly so epigenetics about gene expression? It's the bit that's related to what we do a little bit more. Um, and so maybe a big trauma is not needed for that. Um, and it's really difficult to say because those nuances are probably going to be a bit lost till we get some really good longer term data. It would be my assumption, probably the same as you, that something did happen. And and I probably right or wrong is wrong from my own experience because I walked around um, London in flip flops when I was 23 and got big toe osteoarthritis just in one toe. And I don't know, it just occurred, I had pain for a few days. I've had it ultrasound loads of times. It's definitely a little bit there. There's not much. But if you examined it, you would see it. If I wasn't a podiatrist, would I have really taken that into account? I just thought, oh, it was a bit achy when I was 23 for a few days. And we don't know why then it progresses on some people to get worse and some people it doesn't. Or why some people get the osteoarthritis and it isn't symptomatic or doesn't really recall to them to be symptomatic. So is that about that genetic onset? So I think it can be treated differently and particularly isolate a big toe seems to be different. Um, but yeah, I would probably be thinking the same thing. I'd be like, why is that now? And I would probably want to explore mechanical factors first, like you say, micro trauma or major trauma. Um, yeah. And if they're younger, they've got a better chance of managing it, stabilizing it. So for me, if it was four foot, because of the data around uh, muscle atrophy, the big thing for me is like try and get as much muscle around there as, as you can and stabilize it. And I think I'm much more aggressive with like, say, rehab processes and protection. But equally, I'm happy to load the younger ones a little bit more. And I'm like, don't come off it completely. Let's just try and load modify because the bone still needs to protect itself. Um, but it's about whether it'll progress or not until we have that little bit more data. And Keel are looking at this. They've got the first 18 months. They've got three years. And they're going to do, I think they're trying to do another 18 months and then up to like five years, six years, sorry. So 
until we get better data longitudinally, I don't think we'll know if I'm honest. Um, but yeah, I'd have, I'd probably be the same as you. I'd be like, you've definitely heard that somehow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. where my brain would go. Um, like, what have what, you done? What, 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 what are your thoughts on on earlier referral to surgery for these ones? These young elites that we see that that it's been fed into them that they've got a degenerative joint, and in their mind they've got another ten year career or ten fifteen year career. They often come in and, and you can see they're angling for, um, for, for you just to say, uh, send me to surgery and they'll just, they'll just shave it off. They'll just plane it like, like a door. That's, you know, uh, that's the way it's been uh, described. But what are your thoughts on, on how many of these people make it to surgery and how many perhaps should or shouldn't make it to surgery? Yeah, the younger ones. Yeah, it's really difficult, isn't it? Um, I don't work in surgery. I've never worked in a surgical unit. And it's not, I definitely say it's not my strength. And it's its one of those things, gut feeling wise, that what, and I think if we look at the, there's a very little research around orthopedic or any foot and ankle surgery, whether it's done by podiatry or orthopedics or um, over decision making over when is the right time. Um, Mike Backhouse is one of the few people who's a podiatrist in the UK, looked at timing of um, foot surgery and rheumatoid arthritis because that's very destructive and thought processes over it and uh, patients had better outcomes with earlier surgery and rheumatoid and that's one of the few studies I can think of where earlier was better and I don't know whether that's because of um, subchondral sclerosis and uh, bone changes with remodeling a lot more data around remodeling of bone that happens with this and whether there's a true osteitis that occurs a true inflammation of the bone or whether you get like a fibrotic um change associated with like a bruising microfracture approach that's more chronic and because it loses us maybe some of its nutritional levels and it doesn't maybe turn over as it once did you know are we leaving it too late in some people um but those younger ones who are getting you know like say bits of bone planed off eek it's really difficult to say whether that's a good or a bad thing I don't think I'd like to make a judgment on that if I'm honest I don't know enough data about it and um I'm probably a bit cautious just because I think if they're young and active and I know looking at the data over time there's only one study that's looked at a two-year data at big toe joint most people improved over two years so if you're going to put them in surgery could you really assure that that would be beneficial to what they want to do as opposed to what time might do so if I if they had a good year and it didn't get any better or a good the period where they tried to let it settle and it didn't I think I'd maybe change my mind but I wouldn't immediately I think send I'd try and see if I could see you know time would settle out all other aspects first because I just worry that if they've changed the full architecture of the joint as a complication that that can be a very very difficult thing to then you know if the surgery goes wrong or you know there's an issue and they've got to suddenly do an arthrodesis it's, it's a big problem then because that can really affect them doing really active sports because then the whole yeah. joint's been you know completely shut down it's very stiff and they're much more difficult to deal with I find those much you know in terms of their expectation over what they can do um because they've got a solid joint and there's no going back from that so yeah I think yeah. I'd be good one to get a surgeon on and talk about <laughs> yeah yeah I always say to people you can always have surgery later but you, you yeah now you can't you can't not have it later and I, I think I, I always comes to mind we had a, a professional golfer who a pretty pretty advanced OA in one of his big toes and it was it was really bothering him and we kind of exhaust we thought we exhausted all conservative options and it was kind of getting to that time to talk about surgery and I was a bit nervous about this because this is his living and um just purely because of his his playing schedule he couldn't get in to see the surgery it just didn't work out because of the traveling around the world about 18 months before he really got around to it and by that point he was paying for it now we, we don't really know why whether he'd adapted to it or or, or 
just you know just regressed to the mean but but ultimately he, he, to my knowledge he never ended up having surgery but not because had he had his schedule allowed it he'd have probably had it um so yeah. it t- kind of ties in with what, what you just said about the timelines perhaps we, Na- we natural history yeah Natural history yeah. suggests that lots of people will improve. And I always show them the talkie paper for that. For over two years, most people pain drops about 60 to 80 percent. So if they're willing to wait and they can wait, they should. But there will be some groups who don't and can't and want it done. And they've lived with the pain for a lot longer period. And, you know, pain does change our, you know, our brain chemistry and how we interact with life so I think for some people it is a good option for them because being pain-free is more important than the function of the joint where the function of the joint is very important the big toe is you know it's it's really crucial to a lot of sports so yeah if you can um I'm not surprised by the 18 months becoming pain-free if I'm honest um that seems to support the data that's out there now so um yeah if they can wait and see if there's an improvement do uh but yeah those but natural history is very important. And I think we don't be afraid of just, you know, if you do nothing, they'll still get better. And that's OK. <laughs> so. yeah, yeah. And you're right. You're giving us an idea. We need to get some surgeons on for, uh, for an episode. Yeah, that'd be a good episode. Craig, looking at the time, uh, the only question I've got on our list to go through again is, is treatment. And it was a question about orthoses. But is there anything that's come through on the chat? No, there's been lots of comments and lots of there's been lots of comments and lots of questions. And I think Jill's covered most of them, so that's why I've I've kept quiet. Um, um, few positive comments. We just covered most of them as we've we've been going along. Go through, yeah. Dogs that. Okay. Yeah. That that dog? What's the dog's question? I know. I'll, I'll just mute my <laughs> microphone for a few minutes. Um, well, while Craig's going through that, and while he's while he's kicking the dog, let's just talk about um, about the treatment. We we touched on surgery a little bit, injections a little bit. Um, let's talk foot orthoses because I know you 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 know you've done a little bit of fair bit of research in yeah. this area. Um, you know, summary of someone who's got no current understanding of the the body of literature around foot OA, foot orthoses, um, what would you say to them? Where, where are the key papers to read? What's the, what's the sort of two-line summary of where we're currently at? Mm. <laughs> Not, very, <laughs> not very far. Not very far. <laughs> so, um, like, Cade has actually um, surveyed podiatrists what they do, and they, you know, they squizzle the joint, they do distractions, a little bit mobs, do a little bit strengthening, they put orthoses and particularly like first MTP joint, let's talk about that. They either um, do some kind of cut out and try and increase some kind of range of motion or low differential by giving more range of motion, or they split it up by doing kind of what they call a Morton's extension or reverse Morton's. And again, it depends what you call these things. Everyone calls them different, but basically something that puts material underneath the big toe joint that can change load and potentially reduces how quickly the joint flexes in an abbreviated short form. Um, and on top of that, you can then look at carbon um, fiber or some kind of um, stiffening plate, um, or you can look at rockers. And that's really for, in terms of the big toe joint, that's really where you're going. Do you put more material underneath the joint? Do you take material away from underneath the joint? Do you stiffen up the whole foot or do you put a rocker underneath? And that's where we're at kind of with big toe stuff. And um, there isn't really head to head comparison. We don't know, but there's some evidence around some of those treatments some of the time, which is great. Uh, midfoot, um, there's again, um, anything that will support the foot and contours into the arch, which is really important. I don't talk about neutral being a particular issue because the problem with neutral is it might not give you good um, filling of the arch throughout the entire arch profile and every arch profile is slightly different. So you've got to be careful using prefabs to get 
the really good midfoot support with midfoot osteoarthritis. And what you've got to avoid with midfoot osteoarthritis, which I'm quite passionate about, is tipping it into what to be a traditional um they used to call these arch fillers, valgus fillers, various. People call them weird things, again, depending where you work. But basically an arch support, but it's like a D that just yeah. fills it. The problem with that is you tip the foot outward into inversion. And the problem with that is they've got multi-joint osteoarthritis, which is what we've identified. You could load on the outside. And that's my concern that you're redistributing onto the lateral bones and causing issues further down the line. So you need um, uh, what they call a, my recommendation in the work I've looked at. I've looked at all those that have a good medial and lateral support. So you've got more of a, like a bridge. So you've got like a hump. And again, they call it through midfoot saddles. They call them all sorts of things. But it, um, And you get it sometimes, depending on how you can do cast or those, you sometimes get a better filler. You get a better lateral arch as well as medial arch filler. But that's what you're looking for is to contour into the entire arch. And having something that won't contour into all of it may cause you problems because there could be tendonitis or ligament changes. Um, again, if you stiffen up the whole foot with these like full length carbon stiffeners, they seem to do well, quite advanced arthritis. And again, midfoot rockers, a shoe that rockers or have some kind of rocker does quite well uh, again there's no big trials on that um hilton men's group and shannon um is actually at the podiatry conference they're going to talk about all the work they've done in this so that'll probably be the biggest update um the big thing is um you know we we don't really know who the responders are because there aren't big enough data sets um but that's something i'm hoping to look at with the university of leeds with professor emery um professor keenan and i've got john arnold working with me at the moment from australia who's great so we're hoping to do a little bit more in this area and looking treatments, but there is very little at the moment. Um, and if you are going to put treatments or orthoses into the shoes for foot osteoarthritis, you shouldn't be doing that unless you can assess the knee. That's one thing I'm really passionate about. Be competent to assess the knee, because I guess what? If you give them something for foot osteoarthritis and that's already compensation for the knee, you can really give them knee pain. And that's something you don't want to do. So um, that would be my big thing is make sure you're good at knees. Yeah. And actually, we probably don't have time to go into it because I know Craig gets a bit, gets a bit anxious once we hit the hour mark. Um, but you know, there's a, there's this whole this whole discussion about sort of medial compartment OA and foot and foot level valgus wedging. Uh, perhaps perhaps for another episode, um, uh, perhaps for a part two because clearly yeah. OA OA deserves more than one, one hour, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, no, it'd be good to kind of it'd be good to get maybe like a foot and knee perspective again. John's working lead, so whether we do something like that, that'd be great to um, get yeah. him on and talk about it. But yeah, I think it'd be good because we'll bring up the conference, but it's a good perspective to have because we can have good treatment input into it as podiatrists. Perfect. Um, I think I just I'm just looking up and it looks to me like Craig has disappeared. I know. I know where. Yeah. And and the, the really awkward thing here is because he's he's the one that hits the button that tells us to to not be on Facebook anymore. So we're just going to have to talk it out until he comes back. Oh, on, okay. That's okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so actually, while while we while we do have the time, let's uh, let's just really really briefly talk about medial compartment yeah. DOA and full length I was waiting if you don't mind yeah because, yeah it's big at the uh, conference um, yeah and I, and I and I seem to recall you know there's I remember there's a there's a thread about it on podiatry arena every study that was published they they sort of added it on and I think there's there's got to be 30 or 40 studies and the thing that, that fascinates me is that there's a real discourse in that literature between you know whether this is a good thing something we should do whether this is not a good thing and something we shouldn't do uh, anecdotally clinically I'll always try it with someone with who, who's staring down the barrel of, of you know, knee surgery and, and nothing else. I'll always say that there's nothing, there's no reason not to do this and we'll just cut out some of that algios, um, 
uh, not sponsored by Algios, by the way, but just the one I ordered, that Algios, uh, you know, the wedging, you just cut it out. Um, I'll always try it. And, and, and I guess it would probably get about a 50-50 hit rate, anecdotally. Uh, what, what's your experience with it and, and your current yeah, I think for yeah for valgus legs, you know those real like John Wayne as I would call it, those real John Wayne legs. And actually, there's good evidence for that kind of varus tibial angle and that opening out of the hips, you know, externally rotating. Um, and that's part of the disease process. It's not just something you're born with. That will actually get worse with neosarthritis. And there's actually some evidence now around remodeling at the hip, which came out of the conference. So those knees and those leg alignments do change to be have that big rotation thrust where they've got lots of knee um arthritis and you know they've got instability having a lateral wedge um and i always put it a little bit because i don't like the way lateral wedges work on um uh, the subtalar joint particularly so i always put it in even just a very very slight um um arch support so something very simple i mean i'm not i'm not gonna say which insoles i'm not sponsored by any of them but um yeah i do try that and i think there's definitely for those with those more various alignments it works really well with some um that don't maybe have a severity of that i think it's a bit more 50 50 and the evidence is from the conference world osteoarthritis conferences you need to make sure that you really really screen out people with patellofemoral so if they've got patellofemoral pain or patellofemoral OA, they seem to do differently. So make sure it's just medial knee. So, again, you need really good knee assessment. So um, if and uh, Kim Bernal's group, there was a girl presenting her work um, suggesting that people who present with medial knee, they already have some patellofemoral osteoarthritis, again, about 50 percent. So maybe the reason you're not getting a good uh, hit rate with your insult is because they've got what they call like multi-joinal fully knee complex osteoarthritis and they seem to behave differently so screen out for anterior knee, knee OA try it by all means um, and just be aware of that various alignment that seems to be a good responder it's this what they call abductory thrust that's what they look for on um, cam knee abductory moment if you want to get really into your math but it's basically that big knee that thrusts out and externally rotates so if you see that in clinic try treating it see how you go um there's definitely some groups that seem to have more of that alignment so hence why the wedge seems to work differently in japan it does on america have you noticed the difference in the data so the different studies that seem to do better depending on the populations they've treated so it That's seems to work really well in japanese but it doesn't work okay. as well. um because okay. there's some ethnicity around that bowing of the leg which That's i interesting yeah I mean, we're very diverse in London, so that's that may that, that, that may fact, factor into my clinical reasoning from yeah. this point forward. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Cox of era, yeah, yeah Cox of change. You know, with the head of the rotation, does occur with hip away as well. So I do think there's something in that that the the, the, the bone morphology changes with the, with knee and hip osteoarthritis. So we need to have a bit more awareness in that whether we're going to have a good effect. But yeah, try it. And I was like, same thing. Remove it out if it doesn't work. See how you go. Yeah, but yeah. Bit of a hit rate issue. Craig, welcome back. What happened? Did you? Did I you have, have no idea what happened. <laughs> um, I, I, it was, we thought we were just going to have to talk all night. We were worried. <laughs> well, I, I, I did notice the comment in my absence um, about not letting me back on because you want to keep going for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what we wanted. I was yeah. <laughs> Well, oh, no, we I think, probably, I think we, we probably do. We do have another hour in this, but yeah, for for another time, perhaps. Yeah. 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 No, but I think I'm just scrolling back down. There's a, there was a couple of comments here, Joel, about um, Tim said, I think I need to start doing some reading. And I think that probably sum, sums up what's happened in the last hour, that, that you've opened a lot of people's eyes to a lot of stuff that's been going on that I think a lot of people certainly haven't been aware of. 
Um, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll freely admit that I was superficially aware of a lot of it, but didn't know a lot of the detail. So that's been really, really helpful, even for me, for that last hour. So, so <laughs> I, no, no, I, I, I mean that seriously. I think a few other comments along those lines have been made. That I think that we, we need to do a lot more of this because a, a lot. Yeah, I think back to to twenty, thirty years ago. Oh, you've got a bit of arthritis. Um, next, you, you know, like I, I, I think we, we've come a long way. So well, I think. That, sorry. No, no, it's, it's great because you know I'm really passionate about this. I think everyone just goes, "Oh, it's our way." I know everything there is to know, and you do these talks, and I always try and push the boundary of the knowledge because you're right. It's one of the things that people almost get a bit like, oh, is it just that again? I know how to treat them. I'm like, well, do you really? Because actually there's lots going on and you come away from a World Osteoarthritis Conference and think, actually, it's, you know, they're talking about really sexy things like joint destruction where, you know, we're actually seeing cartilage regrown. I mean, stem cells that you can pull from joint fluid, spin them, create more of them, push them back in. I mean, really great stuff that we, we didn't have time to talk about all the really cutting edge uh, structure modifying drugs we didn't get onto those but there's some really interesting stuff where osteoarthritis is coming to and you know I'm really lucky I work with Professor Conan who's a world leading expert who's an Australian at um, uh, University of Leeds and it's just great working with a group that have that forward thinking and you've got that access and uh, long-term steroid there's now a steroid that stays in the joint for six months which is great we've not talked about that I mean there's loads we've gone for like three days <laughs> so mm-hmm. if people are inspired by it great that's what I wanted. Yeah, well, they certainly have been. And here's two comments that are, or three comments that have just come through. One from Richard. It's honestly been such an education this evening from Matt. This has been great. Oh, hang on. They're scrolling down the screen. Um, oh, Nick, I feel like a first year again. Um, so I think it's, yeah, I think, I think we should finish there, but thanks so much, Jill. And, um, thanks, Ian. So I'll just, let's just stop the live thanks, stream. Jill. Thank you. Thank you.